Well, once again, Muslim terrorists a terrorist have slaughtered innocent Islamic people and extremists now control much of the country. The Their brand of justice is brutal and deadly. Newsflash, America. These Muslim extremists are, uh, are alive and well. They are not dead. And their video is not gratuitous. And it certainly is not irrelevant. It is a warning. Welcome to the Truth About Muslims podcast, the official podcast of the Zwemer Center for Muslim Studies, where we help to educate you beyond the media. Here are your hosts, Howard and Trevor. All right, so we are on part three with the podcast with Dr. Nabil Jabour talking about the history of Islamic fundamentalism. Right, and this is titled ISIS in a Nutshell. Yeah, I mean, we've gotten to the point where, you know, podcast one, we talked about uh, the ideology of ISIS and sort of where it had its birthplace in Colorado Springs and right. Washington, New York with Saeed Qutb. Yeah, that was cool. And then we went from Saeed Qutb to Ayman al-Zawahiri, uh, talked a little bit about Hassan Obana with the creation of the Muslim Brotherhood, but really focused on the relationship between uh, Saeed Qutb, his trip in America, going back to Egypt, and then his influence with his death in 1966 on the life of Ayman Zawahiri, who will eventually become the leader, today's leader, of al-Qaeda. Right. And then how that became the, well, the Muslim Brotherhood and how that all led to all this fundamentalism that had kind of rose up right? because of Qatab's thoughts. And, and then how people. Zawahiri and bin Laden met in yep. Peshawar. And then 9-11. Right. And right. then how that led to 9-11. And then uh, today, uh, he's going to start with um, the creation of ISIS. What does it mean? Right. What is their plan? What's really the difference between ISIS and al-Qaeda? Right. And, uh, what are we supposed to think when we hear what's going on in the news with ISIS? Yeah, and I don't know about you, but like, uh, of course, you know, I'm not an insider, but um, whenever I see the news and ISIS and what they're doing, actually any kind of these terrorist attacks, it just seems sense- senseless to me. But I, I've just been informed by Trevor that they actually have a plan. Yeah. And so we're going to, uh, um, Nabil Jabor is going to talk about that. Yeah, he, he mentions a couple names, but doesn't uh, build on those names. And so after the show, if you're thinking when he mentions these, you know, Fouad Hussein and, and Suri and Naji, like, what are these guys? Where did, where, where did these names go? We'll right. talk about that after the show. So just bear with us. And after you hear the uh, the show, we'll we'll talk a little bit about the plan of Al-Qaeda, looking, right. looking at it from actually 9-11 forward. Right. Don't get lost in the names. Yeah, that's right. right. Well, enjoy. All right, this week's sponsors. CIU. CIU. CIU educates people from a bib- biblical biblical world review. World view. World view. CIU educates people from a biblical world view to impact the nations with the message of Christ. So could you give us an explanation? Give us ISIS, ISIL, IS. What exactly is this group? How did it become what it is today? We only see it happening in the news this year, but I'm guessing there's a longer story there as to how it came about. Uh, The original name is in Arabic. It's an acronym, Daesh, four letters, D-A, then a letter which doesn't exist in the English vocabulary, uh, English alphabet, which is the Ain letter, and then she, she, S-H. These four stand for uh, an Islamic state in Iraq and Sham, or uh, modern translation is Syria. But the word Sham 
is an ancient word for uh, that stands for ancient Syria. That includes Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and Palestine. So that's where All we get that the Levant. Part was that called that, uh, Sham. So in their Muslim vocabulary, their goal was not just an Islamic state in Iraq and Syria, the Syria we know today, mm. but larger than that. So I heard, for instance, Sec- Secretary Kerry refer to it as ISIL rather than ISIS, which is more accurate. Islamic State in Iraq and Levant. Levant is that area that included the four countries of Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and Palestine. Later on, they began expanding their vision to see an Islamic State and a restoration of the Caliphate. The Islamic State doesn't have to be geographically connected. For instance, Boko Haram in Nigeria, if one day they decide to join the Islamic State of Iraq and Levant, can declare themselves as members of the Islamic State and submit to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi as the caliph. And, and some groups have already begun doing this, correct? I mean, yeah. even in Indonesia and in Africa. So, but provided there is territory, there is land that occupy and they control. So was this the goal in Afghanistan with al-Qaeda, with Ayman al-Zawahiri and bin Laden? Were they hoping for the Islamic State to begin there in Afghanistan and then with the U.S. invasion, that plan was thwarted, and then, you know, unwittingly, the invasion of Iraq set up a new place. Yeah, that's right. So, how did they come to be? Who is this uh, Baghdadi? How did he come to be? What what happened between the U.S. killing uh, Zarqawi, I believe it was 2006, to 2014 with ISIL, ISIS that we see yeah. in the news today? Uh, if we go back a little bit in history... Uh, Muslims after the death of Muhammad in 632 they had caliphs the caliph in those days had tremendous deal of power they were the equivalent of a pope and an emperor in one person and over the centuries they had they existed in several countries where the, the capital was finally it ended up in Istanbul in Turkey and it lasted therefore a few centuries. In 1924, the last caliph, Sultan Abdel Majid II, was banished by Kamal Ataturk when Kamal Ataturk declared Turkey a secular republic. Since then, the Vatican, they don't call it Vatican, I'm calling it, the Vatican of Islam has been vacant. So there has been a longing in the hearts of of many Muslims, especially the fundamentalists. When will we ever have a man who will unite all Muslims around the world under his leadership as the caliph, where the caliphate is is restored? So Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi declared himself as Caliph Ibrahim, which is not his real name, and uh, uh, so he, he is now the caliph of the Islamic State. Now, Islamic is very clear that it is Islamic, but many Muslims do not see it representing true Islam. They see it as a heretical understanding of Islam. Secondly, state. How much is it a state? 
I've been reading that uh, they have police, they have security, they are trying to become a state, but with guerrilla warfare approach and being a state, how do these two mesh? Strategically, they withdraw from land occupied if it serves a purpose. How can they rule? How can they govern? This is a test to how far they can go and how long they can last. So where did they come from? It seems like they just popped up out of nowhere, but I suspect, uh, I mean, I've even read reports about uh, this particular uh, leader, Baghdadi, being imprisoned at at Camp uh, Bukha in uh, in the Iraq war with the invasion. So how is, is there a connection between the, the Ba'athists that were imprisoned, the radicals that were imprisoned in the creation of ISIS? Yeah. For years in teaching at seminaries, I told my students about three men, Abu Mus'ab al-Suri, Abu Bakr Naji, and Fuad Hussein. And I would tell my students, you've never heard of these names. One of those days, these names are going to be very famous. Recently, I found out that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the leader of ISIL, or the Islamic State, is a product of the works of these three men. What Mm -hmm. these three men have written as a strategy for the future of Al-Qaeda, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi adopted so ISIL is a, the result of these three men plus Sayyid Qutb applied. What I mean by it, the teachings of Sayyid Qutb put into practice. He didn't do them. He wrote about jihad in a militant approach, but he didn't practice it himself. But Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is practicing what Qutb wrote about. Furthermore, Zarqawi at one time mentored Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. And Zarqawi was the warrior in representing Iraq, and he is responsible for the death of so many in Iraq and for igniting sectarianism in that country. Yeah, I remember reading an article uh, where Zawahiri really was wanting to fight uh, the jihad against these Muslim governments and Zarqawi was wanting to fight against the Shiites because he felt like he could bring in a larger group of people if there was the sectarian violence going on. Mm-hmm. And so Zarqawi being this, you know, wicked, you know, like we mentioned earlier, bloodthirsty uh, sort of leader, I don't know that it almost seems like whenever one wicked person dies, another one is raised up and sometimes it's even worse than the one before. That's true. Because violence escalates. So we have these these people, they've spent time in prison. Uh, there's the Abu Ghraib. Uh, is there any relation there with what's happening today? Immediately after the Iraq war, many people were arrested and put in prison. Most of them were the loyalists of uh, Saddam Hussein and belonged to the Ba'ath party of Iraq. The Abu Ghraib prison scandal was a turning point. Uh, Any one of us can go to the internet and just Google Abu Ghraib, and the photos we see are really shocking. Mm -hmm. As a result of that scandal, they started quickly looking at the multitudes of people that were imprisoned, Iraqis imprisoned. And they found that 80% of them were innocent, and they got released. 
So imagine somebody leaving prison after being there for a year or two and being tortured by Americans and coming and telling the extended family how he was treated, stripped naked, tortured, etc. How would these people view Americans after that experience? So the, the Iraq war, Americans thought we will be received uh, with uh, rejoicing and uh, flowers and, you know, because we came to liberate them from the dictator. But after the Abu Ghraib scandal and the photos that were released, people saw a different face of America and the hatred and prejudice against Americans became a tool to recruit more and more people. Now, in ISIL, a good percentage of the people in ISIL are ex-military people in the Saddam Hussein army. <clears throat> so they are qualified and equipped and trained. They know how to drive tanks. Most probably there are pilots. If they can capture airplanes, fighters, they can use them. Uh, and so uh, ISIL is the product of all these factors. Sayyid Qutb, uh, Suri, Abu Bakr Naji, uh, Fuad Hussein, and all these people together, plus Zarqawi, brought ISIL into existence. And a, a social issue, a political issue, uh, it's almost like, Nabil, it just seems like it was the perfect storm. You have the, the ideology, you have the uh, political fallout, you have a vacuum of power, and ISIL just fills it. That's right. That's right. And uh, the, the war in Iraq empowered the Shiites in Iraq. They were treated as a minority because Saddam Hussein was a Sunni and he treated them as second class. After the American invasion, the picture was reversed where the Shiites took power and Nuri al-Maliki abused power and, uh, you know, kind of treated the Sunnis as second-class citizens. So these Sunnis are fed up with the Shiites and when the ISIL movement started, they were ready to welcome them and cooperate with them. And so this is why we're seeing so many Muslims coming from all over the world to participate. Yeah. And Sunnis are about 90% of the Muslim world, while Shiites is a minority, maybe about 9%. They are mostly in Iran, in Iraq, a little bit in Bahrain, and in Lebanon. While the rest of the Muslim world are Sunnis. And so they are coming to help their brothers, their Sunni brothers against the Shiites whom they perceive now as a heretical kind of Islam. You know, people assume that uh, the situation against ISIL is an easy issue to deal with. Uh, dismantling and destroying ISIL as the president declared is not an easy goal and it cannot be accomplished in few years. Uh, perhaps containment is more accurate description of what we can aspire to in the near future, and the near future could be several years. So uh, uh, dismantling and destroying could take 20 or some people say even 50 years. Uh, the, the challenge is difficult in, with ISIL for various reasons. For instance, Iran is a Shiite country. 
the biggest winner as a result of the Iraq war was Iran. In, it got in, empowered. In Iraq and Iran have a history. Yeah. And so nowadays, it's an interesting situation. Uh, Iran perceives ISIL as the enemy and America perceives ISIL as the enemy. <laughs> So American airplanes are hitting ISIL and Iranians' airplanes are hitting ISIL, but in different areas so that there will not be a direct clash. So this is one of the ironies of, of, of the war in, so the, uh, against ISIL. The enemy of my enemy has become my, my friend in some way. That's right. <laughs> then you come to the issue of Turkey. Turkey is a key player, but for years Turkey has been allowing recruits to fly to Turkey and cross the border to Syria and join ISIL. America is trying to pressure uh, Turkey to do the right thing and close its borders and not allow these terrorists to join ISIL. But ISIL is, uh, uh, Turkey is putting conditions of the, uh, uh, regarding their willingness to cooperate with the United States and its allies. They want the war to be against Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian president, mm -hmm. while the Syrian president is the enemy of ISIL. Uh, so why should you weaken Bashar al-Assad at this time and ISIL takes fills in the gaps where the Syrian army gets defeated? Uh, so it is extremely complicated situation regarding Syria and Iraq. I think, Nabil, what I find so interesting is that who used to be our enemy is now our ally, who might at one point become our enemy again. And when you look at the Middle East and you look at the history, um, since the very drawing of the borders, it's just been been a mess. Yeah. And do you, at some point, do you foresee redrawing of borders in the Middle East to give Shiite countries and, uh, you know, Kurdish country, uh, the Pashtun in Afghanistan and Pakistan. I mean, a lot of this stuff that's happening, it seems to be very much related to, I, I don't want to sound ignorant here, but people not thinking through when they drew certain borders and not recognizing the sectarian violence. And so do you foresee any redrawing of borders coming it in the might future? end up like that sometime in the future. But for instance, take Kurdistan. The Kurds used to be in land, which currently are parts of Syria, Iraq, Turkey, and Iran. All four countries were against these Kurds establishing a state card from these four different countries. Now with the 1991 Iraq war, the Gulf War, uh, the no-fly zone was established and Kurds started gaining power and started having the dream of becoming a Kurdistan. Now they are actually uh, an independent region in Iraq which is called Kurdistan. With Syria, parts of it uh, is, is becoming also part of Kurdistan. Turkey is worried. What if the Kurds in Turkey rebel against Turkey? Iran is worried. What if they rebel against Iran? So this adds another factor to the complica complications. I, I guess what I'm getting from our, our conversation today is that it's much more complicated than just religion. 
it's it much more than than a theological issue. Yeah, there's political things going on. Yeah. There are social issues. Yeah. This is this is a complex. Yeah. complex and remember, Kurd, Kurds are Muslims. So when you think of the Kurds fighting ISIL in Syria, uh, so uh, you know Muslims fighting fellow Muslims with different kind of understanding of what Islam is and who is a real Muslim. I think one of the big things which is happening these days is Muslims are going through an identity crisis of who is a real Muslim. And who's going to get to be the one who defines that? Yeah. For instance, in Egypt nowadays, I heard that are uh, out of 80 million people, there might be about 5 million atheists. Wow. So people are getting tired yeah. of Islam. They see that kind of Islam and they say, we don't want to become. Uh, like if Islam is what ISIL claims Islam to be, I do not want to be a Muslim. Yet at the same time, this is a window of opportunity when people dare to think and dare to doubt they could be open to the gospel. The Muslim world is more ready than ever for the gospel because of what they are going through regarding an identity crisis. All right, so this show wouldn't be possible without sponsors. And at this point in the show is where if you want to partner with us, we would put your ad. So if you want to be a part of the show, you, you want like, to partner with us. You like what we're doing. You want to be on our team, what have you. Bring this show to the world. Then email us and let us know. All right, that was Nabil Jabour uh, with an interview with Trevor. And uh, again, we talked about uh, ISIS in a nutshell. I hope you, I hope you guys liked it. Yeah, Howard, what did you think? ISIS in a nutshell. I mean, I'm just kind of going along with uh, this ride, just piecing everything together, just kind of like, oh, okay, so that's where they came from. This is how it kind of because uh, you know, to be honest, when I watch the news or hear the news, um, I get lost in people's names, and then I just kind of uh, check out. I'm like, oh, that's that's tragic. I just kind of no, want to know what they did. But now this is kind of explaining how it got formed, what what they're thinking, how things are. Uh, um, shaping up and, uh, and, and you're about to share what their plan is, I guess. Yeah. And you know, some of this is obviously speculation. We, uh, the, you know, a lot of this comes from Muslim writers that claim to work with Al Qaeda and have sort of an idea and inside track on what Al Qaeda is up to. And it's really a little bit eerie when you look at what they were writing back in 2005, 2004, after the attack on 9-11, right. and what's actually happened since then in the last decade. Wait, so they've been moving along? They've, oh, yeah. They've been accomplishing goals? Yeah. Well, you know, the idea, Some, I think some members of Al-Qaeda were a little bit um, disappointed with 9-11. What do you mean? They didn't feel like they were ready to do something of that that level of significance that would draw the U.S. out. You remember how uh, Dr. Jabour was talking about Al-Qaeda really wanted to overextend the United States and uh -huh. its military campaigns, yeah. and that's why they had the attack on the U.S. coal, um, and 9-11 was to draw them out. Well, some of Al-Qaeda's inner, inner core leadership didn't agree about drawing them into Afghanistan because they felt like Afghanistan was going to become the new uh, Islamic State, you know, it's kind of like, okay, 
let's think about it from a biblical perspective when we think about Abraham. You know, he makes a promise. God makes a promise to Abraham that he's going to make him into a great nation. And we know from our studies that in order to be a nation, you need a couple things. You need right. people. You need land. Right. A law. Yeah, law, right. you need leadership, all of these different things. And so the Islamic State took a similar approach in that in order to form this Islamic State, this empire with a new caliph, which would eventually be the leader, they needed people, which they had, yeah. uh, groups of people coming to Afghanistan. And more growing every day. Right. Yeah. But they needed land. And so what the Taliban provided for them in Afghanistan was a certain level of safe haven for operation. And that's what they had been searching for uh, all throughout the 90s. And that's why, uh, you know... Zawahiri was arrested in Dagestan because you have these sort of failed states that they continue to go into. They've been uh-huh. in, you know, they've been in North Africa, they've been in Yemen, they've been in Afghanistan, they've been in Pakistan, and they're always looking for failed states where they can have their own land to launch this sort of movement. Wait, wait, wait. So failed states meaning like states that they can come in and take over? Exactly, where there's like a, a failed government, a disenfranchised people, a, a very big sense of injustice, and they can offer something. And so they don't come in and just rule with an iron fist. They actually will come in and begin offering uh, money, pr- provision, uh, care, and they do all this typically through the mosque. And so, you know, the Got same it. thing. That's so why the-, the Taliban, when they came into Kabul originally, when they came in, it was sort of like, oh, these guys are great. They've freed right. us from the Mujahideen. Right. The Against Taliban's. injustice. Right. They, d- then, they did a lot of good things like that in the beginning. And then when you have power, that absolute power that corrupts absolutely, and then the people are like, wait a second, these guys aren't the people we thought they were, and so the Taliban was eventually disliked by the people. Well, right. Al-Qaeda has a similar... Uh, Track record? Yes. So they want to go in, they want to state, they, they attack on 9-11, and then uh, the U.S. invades and dismantles the Taliban, and now they have no state to work from. And so some people, particularly this guy Suri that he mentions, felt like that was too... Uh, you know, preemptive. Like, they shouldn't have done that yet. They weren't ready for that sort of level of attack. Interesting. So they go in and they attack, and it does do what they wanted it to do, but they didn't feel like they were ready on the back end. Well, I think they were hoping that they would have to attack multiple places at one time Uh and overextend the army. But when they came in and just quickly dismantled the Taliban... They, they felt like, well, there goes our state that we were working from. Interesting. But, of course, Ayman Zawahiri, the leader of al-Qaeda, says, no, this is exactly what we want. And so there's a little bit of a division going uh-huh. on in al-Qaeda about okay. how this thing went. And so what, what was the, the plan after that? Okay, so then uh, the other guy that he mentions is uh, Fouad Hussein, uh-huh. who uh, is supposed to be a radical Jordanian. Um, he was good friends with Zarqawi, and uh, Zarqawi is also of course, a Jordanian. Right, that's found, right. I just found that out. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, Thank he's <laughs> he's he's from uh, southern Zarqa uh, in Jordan. That's how he gets Zarqawi. Anyway, okay. he's Jordanian, and uh, Zarqawi is the leader of Al Qaeda in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Ayman Zawahiri and Zarqawi never really get along that well. Oh, because Zarqawi feels like we shouldn't be attacking the U.S., we shouldn't be fighting with the U.S., we should be fighting against secular Muslim governments, particularly Muslim governments that are Shiite. Right. Because if we can draw the sectarian violence, that's when we'll begin to draw Muslims from all over the world, the Sunnis against the Shiites. So he has this kind of apocalyptic, eschatological, you know, war in his mind, and Zarqawi and uh, Zawahiri just had two very different approaches. Zarqawi wanted to fight the Shiites. Uh, Zawahiri felt like it was time to fight against the West, and that's where those two kind of, they clash. But, but Zarqawi was really, really successful. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, he but, was. Uh, he, but he was brutal. Even with the beheading of Nicholas Berg in the first Iraq war, he was condemned immediately by Zawahiri for being too brutal. Really? Yeah. So that he didn't, Zawahiri didn't like this idea of the sectarian violence. I don't think he saw it as being too effective, that it would really um, draw the sympathy from the Muslim community. He thought the better enemy would be the West. Zarqawi thought the better enemy would be fellow Muslims that are Shiites that we don't even consider Muslim. Yeah, they called them heretical. That's what uh, Jabur said. Right. They don't even consider the Shiites Muslim. And you know what? Honestly, I think Zarqawi was right. Wait, 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 wait. Why? Well, because with the Islamic State in Iraq, they're drawing way more uh, favorability and attention. Because of the sectarian violence. Right. But doesn't it seem like the, the house of Islam, so-called, uh, doesn't it seem like it's more divided and more uh, uh, you know, frac- frac- fractured? Or? No, no, not when you think about Sunni and Shia, because Sunni and Shia is not the house. They don't, the Sunnis don't look at Shia as part of the house. I mean, that, that division happens a long time ago with the, the divisions between the Sunni and Shia, and it's gotten to the point now where the Sunnis don't consider the Shia Muslim. Okay, but what do the Shiites do enough to cause such uh, hatred because like like from what uh jabur was saying that that these uh sunnis are are uh, are are coming in to isis to battle against the shiites there's right. not a lot of shiites they're 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 a minority group ten, yeah 10 10 percent right yeah so like what did they do that was bad enough to all these sunnis to say yeah let's take up arms against these guys and well if you think about the shiites like after the u.s I think Jabour mentioned this after the U.S. invasion of Iraq, and then the the leader goes from Saddam Hussein to right. uh, a Shiite leader, Maliki, and then all of a sudden the Shiites have power and they don't build bridges. Right, because Saddam, Saddam Hussein he kind of treated uh, treated uh, the the Shiites as a secondary, uh, like a second class citizen. Right, and, and now when they're the in Shiites power. Were in power, they did the same thing right. to the Sunnis, except that they're a small smaller group. Well, what ends up happening is that the the Sunnis are mostly, I think he mentioned this too, released from prison, and they form a pretty powerful coalition to go and take back control of the government. And right. their enemy is the Shiite government. And so that's what draws so many people from all over the world, is they're fighting against the Shiites, and they're also fighting against Assad in Syria. And so you have this war. Well, let me just read Fouad Hussein's uh, perspective on this, because I mentioned him in the beginning, and I haven't gotten there. Oh, yeah, sorry. Gotten there. <laughs> So the, the master plan, uh, really outlined by Fouad Hussein in 2005, he produces what's called uh, a book called The Second Generation of Al-Qaeda. Okay, and it's a biography kind of of Zarqawi, his movement, and that's where he starts to talk about the master plan of Al-Qaeda and what they're going to do. And so let's just look at what he says. He says that uh, the initial stage is called the eye-opening the open, the eye, no, the awakening. That's stage one, and the awakening is really the striking on September 11th. That's going to um, strike the head of the serpent, uh, America, essentially, right. and then American troops will uh, attack, right, retaliate. And he's hoping, he says in the plan, that the, one of the hopes is to draw America into uh, Baghdad, which is part two, the second stage of the master plan. He says that. Well, this is after, and so, I mean, obviously, this is 2005. Oh, so, so he knows. Right, but he says that... This is happening, right. but this is a part of the plan. Okay, right. the end, the end of The end of stage one is when the U.S. goes and invades uh, Baghdad. As soon as they enter Baghdad, he says, now we're in stage two. The second stage is called the eye-opening, and that will last until around 2006. He says, Iraq will become the recruiting ground for young men eager to attack America. Wow. 
He and, says, and, and this is again, like Jabor said, was connected with Israel, like how U.S. became the enemy. Right, 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 right. Right, okay. Even more so than Israel. Right. And he says that electronic jihad and the internet will propagate al-Qaeda's ideas. Now, that's what I find fascinating, because he's saying this back in 2005. And the biggest thing that we saw this weekend on television was that the recruitment of all of these people, these radicals, uh, radical Islamists in France and, you know, Belgium and Denmark and UK and all over, is all happening online. And that was in 2005, you said? Yeah, he says that... There's going to be uh, uh, an electronic jihad. And he says also with that, um, they're going to begin to propagate al-Qaeda's ideas online and that, that Muslims will be pressed to donate funds through online donation and giving. And we're seeing all this now. Wow. The third I, I stage, never even thought about that, like how that made could make such an impact financially. Oh, huge, huge. The third stage is called, uh, call, he calls the arising and standing up. And that's going to last from 2007 to 10. Al-Qaeda will focus on Syria and Turkey. Oh my gosh. Right? Okay. And wait, wait, wait. Time out, time out. Uh, this is, might be ignorant on my part, but what's happening in Turkey? Well, I know the U.S. Mm, is pressuring them to close the borders, but they're sure. not closing the borders, no. right? And so all, all these terrorists are going from Turkey, but what, is that, what else does it have to do with anything? Well, I think you have to realize that what he's saying is that it's going to start in Iraq, uh-huh. spill over into Syria, and then over into Turkey, and this is the beginnings of this Islamic state. Right. This is the land taking. Yeah. Okay. So this was 10 years ago that he was talking about this, right. that but this is the but strategy. He, he, his so time, Turkey, his timeline is 2007 to 2010. Right. So he's a little bit off, and, and they've not been quite as successful. But as Turkey's not closing the border, so that says a lot still. Right, and Turkey, okay. I don't think Turkey would say that they're out of, uh, out of trouble with any of this. Yeah, it makes sense. And so 2007-2010, uh, focus on Syria and Turkey, and then uh, begin directly to confront Israel in order to gain more credibility with the Muslim population. So those that wow. didn't join in with the sectarian violence against the Shiites, once there's some uh, conf- confrontation with Israel, then we'll get sympathy from the rest of the Muslim world. We'll begin to recruit even more, essentially. Right. And that's really interesting about what uh, Nabil Jabour says, was talking about how there was a chance at peace. Yeah. Uh, with the with Middle East and, and Israel, but then that wasn't taken. Yeah, that's 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 crazy. And so this now becomes part of his plan uh, to uh, the the enemy thing, where like you know an enemy, your enemy, uh, you know, oh, my enemy of my enemy. Was it? Wait, yeah, what's the enemy the of my enemy is my best friend. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, I don't have any enemies, so I don't have to ever say this thing. But you know, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, fool me once. Yeah, <laughs> but the point is, like that's that's brilliant. Do you ever notice on the media that these guys just don't seem, they're not portrayed as intelligent. They're just kind of, you know, animals. These right. just, you know, like They're not thinking anything through. Right. But apparently these guys have a plan, and that's actually, I think, more frightening. Yeah, no. I would say that the leadership does have a plan. They are well-backed financially. They right. are well-backed uh, militarily. They are well-backed and trained, um, and they have a, a radical ideology that they can back up theologically. So, I mean, in that sense, there's no uh, fanaticism, you know, just this yeah, kind of, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's well thought through. Right. It's the vast majority of people following those people that I would say, I don't think you could say the same thing of. Yeah, but they don't necessarily need to be the intelligent ones, I guess, really. No, they no. just need to be the ones that are doing the atrocities or doing They just the, need to buy in. Yeah. Okay, so a, a, 
Hold on, we got another another stage. And the fourth stage... I'll save my question. Okay, so the fourth (laughs) stage, uh, this will last until 2013. Al-Qaeda is to bring about the demise of Arab governments. And so I would assume that includes North Africa, Egypt. And so you almost wonder with a lot of the things that were happening back with the Arab Spring, if there's so much going on that there's not the ability to keep the consistent timeline, but I think there's already some movements to do that, destabilize Arab governments, get the people really frustrated, and then have these movements happening all throughout the Arab world. And so you have things happening like with Boko Haram in Nigeria, you have things happening uh, with all of these groups across the Middle East. Yeah, something you said to me that surprised me today was uh, that, um, was it Al-Qaeda or ISIS was uh, actually going after Boko Haram to, to try to recruit them to join? Yeah, I had this really interesting discussion with a guy from Afghanistan, and I was asking him about his home village, and he said, you know, it's largely under the control of the Taliban, and they're pretty ruthless, and he said, but he just had spoken with his cousin here recently, and he said, there are new people here, and they're Arab, and they say that they were with ISIS. Isn't that crazy? With the Taliban. Yeah, that they are trying to, there are Arabs coming in and trying to take over the Taliban and basically say, hey, we're, we're the new, it's, it's, it's kind of like uh, mafia. Yeah. You know, like turf wars. Right. Like, and the, and the, we're maybe the, the new guys. And they work together at in some point because it doesn't sound like they, he wasn't saying they went to battle. They went to war no. against each other, just kind of came in and started infiltrating and, and saying that we're the new, we're the new mafia in town, basically. Wow. So anyway, this is kind of the, the way that it goes. And that's why you have groups in Indonesia saying, hey, we're with ISIS. And you have groups in Africa saying, hey, we're with ISIS. Right. And then these weird terrorist attacks across you know, the Western world. And some of them say they're with ISIS. That's right. Even in France, one guy says, I'm with ISIS. The other guy says, oh, no, I'm with the Al-Qaeda in the Arab Peninsula. And so there is a certain level of... Uh, one of the definitions. Well, I would say one of the definitions of a movement is when it grows beyond its original people. Oh, right. So and it doesn't have to be intentional so much. People yeah. just start to claim. I think that's what concerns me more than anything is there is a certain level of a movement happening here that isn't necessarily tied to any one particular leadership group, but the ideology that ties them all together. You know, is a, a hatred towards the West, the injustice um, of Israel, and a desire to see sort of an Islamic state that will conquer and flourish. Uh, this wonderful, unique Quranic generation that existed in the seventh century—that kind of propagates all of this. So right. they, don't, they don't even know who they're following, but they know that you know wh- who they're against. They might not know who they're for, but they know who they're against. Right. So anyway, all right, keep going. Uh, fourth stage. What does he say? Uh, Middle East. <laughs> this was interesting. Meanwhile, attacks against the Middle East and the petroleum industry will continue, which is so interesting because look at the price of gas right now and look at the petroleum control in Iraq with ISIS. Uh, America's power will deteriorate through constant uh, expansion of its circle of confrontation. So it's hoping to draw the U.S. out even further, which thankfully we're not involved in anything, but who knows? Um, by then, they're going to launch electronic attacks to undermine the U.S. economy. Now, some people are thinking, come on, this is like conspiracy theory. But it is something to be said that ISIS was able to hack into some of the U.S. Department. Of, what was it? The Twitter feed of, uh, was it the White House this past weekend? And they put an ISIS. Did you, did you see that? No, happen? I didn't. All right. L- let me double check on that before I say. But they, they were able to infiltrate something within the government that was it should have been concerning to people. 
uh, I think it probably was concerning to most people, but they'll promote the idea of using gold as the international medium of exchange and collapse the dollar, which some people, at least from the Muslim world's perspective, and also the Russians and the Iranians are propagating this, right. is that that's why the U.S. got involved in Iraq and with the destruction oh, and killing right. of Gaddafi, right. because they were trying to promote the use of gold for the purchase of oil rather than the dollar. But right. that's one of the strategies to collapse the dollar. Okay, then in the final stage, the fifth stage, uh, this stage, the West um, will, uh, the international balance is going to change. Al-Qaeda and the Islamist movement will attract powerful new economic allies, such as China. Europe will fall into disunity, and then it will come to the final stage of total confrontation. By 2020, uh, the world will realize the uh, real meaning of terrorism, and there will be a definitive victory uh, that would have been achieved by Al-Qaeda and all of its affiliates. And so this kind of total confrontation, that's the apocalyptic sort of, you know, World right, War III. And times. And, right. It, but, the, but I guess the question is, is this ISIS or is this Al-Qaeda? Is it, or are they, because I know that Al-Qaeda just kind of dis, tried to disband uh, ISIS at one point. But then are they, are they working together again? Or is this just kind of like we just lumped them all together? I have not heard anything lately from Zawahiri talking about the, you know, the confrontations that happen between Al Qaeda and ISIS. I haven't heard anything here lately. Mm. So, so who, who knows? It's, it's kind of out. Yeah. It's kind of one of those might makes right. Like it doesn't seem like Al Qaeda, like Zawahiri really has a handle on what's happening. It seems like the influence of ISIS in uh, Iraq is much more significant than Zawahiri's. And I say that because they actually have land. Yeah. Because now they, they, they're, they're a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, they have land, they have military training, they have weapons, they have money, they have oil. Yeah. So, and it's some of the most bizarre stuff going on. Like, the, they're, they're selling oil to, you know, groups like Assad, who they're actually against. There's so many bizarre things happening yeah. that it's almost, <laughs> well, well, <laughs> you're well, like, well, what? Well, how Nabil Jabour was talking about how Iran was attacking and we're attacking, you know, so they become kind of allies in this weird, you know, battle. It's really interesting. Okay, so this is the question, all right? And maybe this will be the last question because it will be such a great question. Yeah. But I've been, th- I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about it for a while now. <laughs> so Form- if, formulate it well. <laughs> if ISIS or Al-Qaeda, whoever, if they get to this point of, um, well, a certain point, I don't know what point that would be, but they legitimately have a lot of power. They're rewriting um, the maps uh, the government, uh, the government control of, uh, of the Middle East and maybe Afghanistan, Pakistan, maybe these these major Muslim countries. Do they, will they be able to have enough power to say what goes with the rest of the world, uh, Muslim world? Uh, will uh, Baghdadi become the caliphate? Like, is that possible by just taking so much control? You know, right now it's Iraq and, I, uh, and Syria. But what if it does happen to Turkey? What if, what if uh, you know, like Iran falls somehow or some of these other nations, uh, you know, and then the Boko Haram, right, uh, in uh, Africa? Uh, what if there's other groups like that become recruited? Is there a certain point where Baghdadi could actually become the Muslim caliphate, the, po- the pope of Islam, basically? Is that possible? Because right now everyone's like, no way, this is not happening. We don't agree, you know. But if they continue to grow like this, is that possible? I don't think so, and, and here's why. Um, people will try to make the case that Islam can be unified if they just go backwards to the 7th, uh, 8th century unique Quranic generation that existed at the time yeah. of the Prophet Muhammad, and then the unique, uh, uniquely guided caliphs that came after these four, these four caliphs 
um, that came after Muhammad because right. they would say that those four caliphs, this is the, the, the fundamentalist now, they're going to argue that those four caliphs were legislating everything by God. They were operating under the Sharia. They were operating under the banner of Islam, not under the banner of any nationalistic identity, not an, under the banner of an ethnic identity. And they have this really rose-colored lens at which they view this uh, unique Quranic generation. Okay. And it's just not true. That unique Quranic generation never existed. From the very beginnings of Islam, you have assassinations of, of leaders, including some from those those four original caliphs. Oh, okay. And you have groups already splintering and deciding what is Islam supposed to look like. And you have the, you know, the Umayyads and the Abbasids, these two large dynasties that form, and they start to uh, attack one another. And so I don't think that there is any... Uh, system that's built upon an ideology, whether it be Islam or a political ideology or you name it, whether it's democracy, communism, anything, you know, uh, Pax Romana, L- look at history. Yeah. And I think that if there's one particular ideology that you think is going to unify the world politically, then you're just, you don't know history. So you're just saying that they're so spread out that it's, it's, it's going to be impossible. Not not not, not, ge- not geographically, but you know, just ideologically, just right. the way everyone thinks. Their even their theology and their people, their people. Mm. They're, they're not going to be able to pull this together. I mean, think about us as the church, filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Trying to pull it all together, working with uh, you know the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church and right. the Evangelical Church. There's so many tribes, the, uh, you man. know, especially of thinking and and trying to unify that all under one unified front. And we're 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 indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God, right? And that's still not happening. Yeah, yeah. So why would we assume that there, there's going to come a time where all of these, uh, you know, radical Muslims that what time has shown is that as they get power and they get more power, they get more corrupt and they get more wicked, and then eventually they're uh, overthrown. They're overthrown, right. most likely by their own people. Yeah, and that's why. You know, uh, you have ISIS going in and fighting against Al-Qaeda in Syria. And Al-Qaeda in Syria is like, well, wait a second. Yeah. Hold on. <laughs> I thought we were on the same team. <laughs> you Remember, know what I mean? Refer to the master plan. So I okay, don't, yeah. <laughs> Did you guys not get the handbook? Yeah. So I don't, I don't think that it's something that is realistic. Now, there is some legitimate concern, though, with areas like Israel, because there is nuclear weapons. Uh, Pakistan with uh, groups like the Taliban and, and more radical groups within Pakistan that want, you know, that would be my biggest concern is that they have access to nuclear weapons. Not right. so much that there's a real legitimacy to a new Islamic empire forming. I don't see it. I just don't see it happening. But I do see that individuals will continue to do things and then small groups will continue to gain power and do things and I think when history looks back on this, they're going to see that the Third World War started right after the Second World War. Well, that's not very comforting. Thank you, Trevor. (laughs) Well, I'm just saying. I really think that's the way that historians will look at it. I think they're going to look at the drawing of nation states after World War II and the removal of uh, colonialization. And, uh, you know, they're going to look at this and say that the the Third World War was really... uh, Yeah, these are the factors leading up to... 
Right. And right. 9-11 will be uh, a, a, a turning point. The invasion of Iraq will be a turning point. The establishment of Israel in 1948 will be a turning point. And so you look at all of these turning points between establishment of the Muslim Brotherhood, establishment of Israel, uh, Said Qutb and his book Milestones, right. uh, the invasion of Russians into Afghanistan, right. the overthrow of the Russians, and then the with the, with the help with the help of the U.S. right, and yeah. then the Mujahideen, right, and bin then the Laden. formulation of Al Qaeda with Bin Laden, right. and then the attacks in North Africa and the embassies in Africa and the U.S. coal, and you look at all of that together, which we need to put together a timeline. You look at all of that together, and I think any historian looking back a hundred years from now is going to say, yeah, the Third War really started right after the end of the Second World War with the drawing of nations. States, and some people were just not okay with the way that happened. Yeah. And they've been fighting more, more than not since. okay. Right. Because of bloodshed and all that stuff is happening because of that. Right. And right. so I think what we, what we end with is exactly with what Nabil Jabour ended with, that the Muslim world is in an identity crisis and we need, there, there's, there's an opening right now that the Muslim world has never seen before. And that's where Christ needs to come in. And so we need to not fall prey to the temptation of the evil one to not love the Muslims with with the, the love of Jesus, like that's what we right. have to we have to respond in love and with the gospel, right? Because with this, there becomes a lot of opportunity, just like Namil Jabor was talking about. Just that that statistic about the atheists and he said Egypt, right? Was that correct? I yeah, think it was Egypt. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, Five thousand atheists, which is you know you're talking about Egypt. Yeah, you know that's that's pretty crazy. Which means. It doesn't even say that for uh, that the the part about being atheist that that doesn't bother me so much as uh, I'm thinking about all those people that are on the fence, right? You know, because right. if, if five thousand are actually atheist, mm-hmm. then that means there's a lot more that are on the fence, right? And that's that's kind of where uh, I think we come in as uh, as Christians mm-hmm. and, and change the the face of that nation, change the face of you know the Muslim world now uh, as we come into contact with more and more Muslims that are on the fence. Yeah, I think we can't lose sight of the fact that God uses the wrath of man to praise him and that he is the one who can turn the heart of a king as the streams of water. I mean, we cannot lose the fact that God is involved in all of this somehow. We can't lose sight of that. If we do, then we'll fall into deep, you know, depression and conspiracy theories and who knows what else. And and fear. Yeah. Because I kind of had that sense when you were like, uh, the next world war, I'm like, I don't want that. You know, I I just kind of have this, you know, sense of fear that was kind of coming over, but then just being reminded like, Hey, let's not, let's not forget what our, what we're called to do. Even in the midst, doesn't matter what's happening, whatever circumstances we're called to, uh, to be salt and light, right. To, to share the gospel, to, you know, to, to change, um, our circumstances through the Holy spirit, through the work of Christ. Yeah. And called to pray. Yes. Yeah. So if you're listening to us, um, don't be discouraged. Don't be, yeah. Don't be discouraged. uh, Remember, uh, that, uh, that God has a plan. Yeah. Be encouraged that, um, I mean, just yesterday I was talking with a guy from Pakistan and just telling him, uh, about Jesus and just to see his face and his excitement about the gospel. There are so many Muslims out there that are open to the gospel right now. Yeah. Don't be discouraged. Tell people about Jesus. So the show wouldn't be possible without sponsors. And this week's sponsors are... Zwammer Center. Zwammer Center. Zwammer Center. The Zwammer Center. Zwammer Center. And what does the Zwammer Center do? Uh, Talks about Muslims and and tells them on the computer that we love you. Very nice. 
The Swimmer Center equips the church to reach Muslims. The Swimmer Center has been educating people about reaching Muslims before it was cool. So, uh, Tre- Trevor, this weekend your wife went out of town and you recorded 12 hours? Yeah, I went out into yeah, I went out into uh, neighborhoods looking for uh, Muslims. <laughs> wait, wait, wait! I, I, don't, actually, I don't even I took, know what that means. So I took, I took the bus okay. and uh, wait, the city bus? Yeah, I took the bus. That's My so wife cool. had the car. Uh-huh. Took the bus, went to an apartment complex, and literally walked around until I saw a Muslim. Now I know that's totally profiling. Like, well, how do you know what a Muslim <laughs> looks like? I just know, okay. <laughs> And so I see a guy walking, and I just shout, like, Salaam Alaikum. And he replies, you know, well, like, Salaam. Oh, okay. I, I walk over I to like, him. You shouted at him? Okay. <laughs> I shouted start. at him, you know, like, hey. But yeah, hey, okay, that's peace, better. Peace, peace. And, and then uh, what did he say? He said, uh, do we know each other? And I said, no. And uh, <laughs> of I, course said, not. I said, I just, I thought you were Muslim. And, and he said, I am, and I'm new here. And I said, well, welcome. I said, I'm so glad you're here. And he said, oh, come to my house. I want you to meet my family. And so I spent the next six hours with that guy. And Get out of here. No, I kid you not. Wait, wait, wait. I don't know you. You're, he says he's new here, and uh-huh. he says, welcome. I want you to meet my family. Yeah, so I go meet his wife, meet his kids, and hang out for about six hours and eat some really good food. It's so funny because uh, you know I told him my wife and kids were out of town, and he was like, oh, well, you have to stay for dinner, of course. you know. So. Oh, yeah, because you're not going to get fed. That's right. right? So I stayed like, there. You're gonna, we're going to feed you. I stayed there till like 10 o'clock at night, and then I woke up the next morning, went back, and then found another family and hung out with them. Did you shout then, at them, too? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's my strategy. Shout hello. Like, who's this white guy? <laughs> If you only had one strategy for Muslim evangelism, what would it be? Shout hello. <laughs> Look somebody right in the eye and say hi. Yeah. Uh, you know something else that you just said? You said welcome. It's oh, kind yeah. of interesting. Like you're coming on his turf where right. he lives, and Americans probably would never think about this, but he's just like, oh, well, he's an American, and he's saying welcome. That's pretty neat. Yeah. Okay, so you went to another interview. or uh, we, we, should, we should say that loosely because yeah. you were just shouting at people that you just saw. Yeah. And then he said hi. Yeah, and and then what? What happened? Like no, just just well, the one guy, of course, says, "Yeah, I'm going over to my friend's house." I said, "Oh, great, can I come?" And he said, "Sure, you should meet him too." So I go over, we meet his friend, and then uh, I asked his friend just to tell me a little bit about what was it like to uh, come to America because he had been here a while. Oh, okay. And uh, he shared a story with me, and uh, it was a really powerful story. Just very much a classic immigrant story of struggling for the American dream and he's, right. he's getting there and it's, it was pretty amazing. And, uh, afterwards I said, well, I've got to run. I said, I'll come back another time. We'll have an, you know, tea. I think I drank so much tea this weekend. I feel, <laughs> I still feel jittery. You're super caffeinated. Yeah. Yeah. Black so, tea, man. That's potent stuff. Yeah. So as I was, <laughs> as I was getting ready to leave, he said, wait, 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 don't leave. And I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> I don't know what I'm supposed to... And he said, uh, I'll be right back. And so I don't know what he was going to do, but he went to tell his son to manage a store or whatever, and he came back over and said, uh, can we talk some more? I said, okay. And he said, I want to hear your story. And I said, you do? And okay, said, wait, 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 time on. You said you had to leave. Yeah. <laughs> and he wanted to talk some more. Right. Okay. And I really going. did need to go. I was hungry. Um, I had eaten, uh-huh. but I didn't eat enough, and I knew I had a long drive. I was supposed to speak somewhere that night, and I wanted oh. to rest a little bit before I got on the road and drive. And all you've been drinking is tea. Okay. Yeah. And juice at that point. So, you know, I was, uh, I said, okay, you want to hear my story? And he said, yeah. And uh, so I said, well, where do you want me to start? And I'm not joking. This is no exaggeration. We had only known each other about four hours at this point. And he said, you know, I've lived in America a long time. I've met a lot of Americans. And he said, but you're different. 
Wow. And I said, why? And he said, it's something about your face, the way you smile, the way you listen, how you make someone feel comfortable even though you just met them. And he said... Wait, wait. So he felt that from you? Yeah. All of that. Right. And I'm just sitting there listening, you know. But Wow. I, I credit that to the spirit of God. <laughs> you know me, Howard. It's not me. No, you're a good listener. So anyway, I, I was... <laughs> I was sitting you have an there. Open, you have an open face. Yeah. I have a yes face, I <laughs> yeah. guess. So anyway. Yes face. Okay, keep going. I said, uh, I said, would you want to know why I'm that way? And he said, yes. And uh, I said, well, how much time do you have? It's a long story. And he said, as much time as it takes to find out. He said, I suspect there's something very different about you, and I don't know where it all begins. And I said, uh, where do you think it begins? He said, it must begin with your parents. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense for yeah, right. A Muslim, you know, the way the Muslims think. Yeah, and so of course I, I talked about my parents and the good things that I learned from my parents, and I also shared with them a little bit about how my parents divorced. And he kind of looked at me with a look of shock, and he said, "I don't understand. Your parents divorced?" And I said, "Yeah, they did." And he said, "Then how? How did you become oh I the see. person that you became?" So he thought that that because they divorced, that would have mean. That I would be off. Right. Something would be wrong and, with you. And, yeah, and, okay. and honestly, you know, part of my coming to know Christ was through my parents' divorce. Really rooting in in my faith was, was at that time. So that's what I turned to. I said, well, it was at that time that I did feel um, alone. I did feel like nothing was making sense. And that was the time that I began to pray and I began to read the Bible and I began to take serious what it meant to follow after Jesus. And he said, what, what do you mean? And so I just sat for the next 20 minutes about what does it mean to follow Jesus? Who is Jesus? What has he done in my life? And just shared my testimony for 20 minutes. And I'm talking at points, he's just getting misty-eyed, like this is an amazing story. And I'm looking at him and saying, be sure that the, the credit goes to God, because I'm sure without Jesus, I would not have become the person that I am today, that it's only by the grace of God. And he, he fully agreed Wow. and said, we have to talk more. We have to talk more. So did, did you say Esau or Jesus? I just said Jesus. Huh. His English was fairly good, and okay. he's not an uh, Arabic speaker. If you know he was an Arabic speaker, I would have probably referred to the Arabic term, but he uh, he knew English well enough. Right. So wow, that's pretty cool. So you just yelled at a guy who led you to this guy, and you shared his tes- your testimony and talked to him about Jesus for all this time. Well, I yelled at a guy who led me to another guy who led me to another guy. And so this all happened over a period of Friday for about six hours, Saturday for about ten hours. <laughs> Sunday is a Sabbath, so I just chilled and watched some football. Yeah. And then Monday to the guy who finally um, I was able to sit with. And the other guys I was able to share things with and pray with as well, but not to the level I did with the guy on Monday. Something was different about that meeting where he was genuinely more interested in why I was the way that I was. That's interesting, man. So, So, yeah, go to an apartment complex. Yeah, what a testimony to, like, how easy it is. No, I got to give you one blunder, though. Okay. One time I was at the public library and uh, in walks probably five or six women in the full niqab, which is like the full black dress where all you can see is their eyes. Oh, really? Yeah. In the, in, in the library here? In Richland in, County Library. Okay. And I see them walking down it. And I mean, every eye in the library was staring at these women. Sure. Like, you that know, makes sense. What the headscarf and the niqab is supposed to prevent, it actually drew attention. <laughs> yeah, right. Especially in the States. <laughs> so everyone is staring. And there's uh, one young boy with them and one man. 
And so uh, I immediately, as they come down the escalators, if you've ever been to the children's library, you know what I'm talking about. I love that library. So they come down the escalator and they're all walking around looking for books, young girls and and moms and everything else. And uh, there's one man and I walk over to him and I say, Salaam Alaikum. And he goes, uh, uh, Alaikum, uh, I'm sorry, I don't remember how to say it. I'm not Muslim. (laughs) And I was like, what? (laughs) I said, I don't understand. And he said, actually, this is my uh, sister's family. My sister is married to a Muslim man. So these are all like her family. I'm actually not Muslim. Interesting. So he's just guiding them around. But even then, Aslam Alaikum still turned into a great conversation with a guy that didn't know Arabic, that wasn't Muslim. And so we just talked for a while about, uh, you know, what I did and yeah. why I wanted to okay. meet him okay. as a Muslim. So and what was the blunder? I don't see what the blunder was. <laughs> I'm just saying it doesn't always work. You might shout Aslam Alaikum to somebody that might not be the Muslim. Like, I'm, I'm from Brooklyn. Yeah, I'm, I'm from Brooklyn. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You might say, you might say something to somebody assuming they're Muslim and you're like, well, I'm sorry. You're yeah. not actually Muslim. Okay. You just kind of look Muslim to yeah. me. It was the I seven prof- ladies. I just profiled you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've done uh, it with somebody that was Indian too. They were Hindu and I thought they were Muslim. I thought they were from Pakistan. They, they probably were speaking weren't. Urdu, but were they, they were actually speaking uh, Urdu, but they were Hindu. But they weren't offended probably, right? No, they actually yeah. knew how to respond. But then when I said that it wasn't, they weren't Muslim. Yeah. It's a great question though yeah. to ask somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even you go in somewhere and you could say, are you Hindu, Muslim, Christian? Like just ask, start with that. And they'll yeah. say, and they'll kind of laugh and yeah. like, oh, I'm Muslim, you know? Yeah, of course, look at me. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> anyway, so uh, that's it for the show. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed those stories. Uh, and uh, again, please, uh, we, we like this interaction. So if you have any stories where you're going around uh, yelling, <laughs> shouting at people, <laughs> shouting at Muslims, uh, uh, you know, obviously greeting, not Just yelling. Make sure at you them. shout the right thing. Don't right. shout Allahu Akbar or something. Like shout <laughs> hello. We want to hear. We want to hear your stories. So write in and uh, please, again, reviews help on iTunes. Yeah, we are uh, up to eleven, I think. No, it's ten, ten, ten. It will be eleven after you guys listen and, and write in. Uh, but we really appreciate it. Even if it's just like a real short, you don't have to be like really academic when you write these reviews, but just... Yeah, don't be. Yeah, <laughs> right. It, it just helps. I, I think when people check out our podcast, they're like, oh, th- these guys have some reviews. This is actually pretty good. So uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Yep. And if you have any comments, write in truth about uh, comments at truthaboutmuslims.com. All right. Bye.